The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Father, there are so many things in this world that we praise and that we give glory to and honor to. And we highlight in our lives and we talk about, and unfortunately, you're often not that thing. And yet, as that song said, and as the reality is true, when, when we truly understand how great and powerful and mighty and awesome you are, you stand above all else, everything else but a created thing, and you are the creator. And so, Lord, if we do nothing else today, Lord, help us to see your glory and to appropriately praise you and to humble ourselves and realize that we are but dust. We are clay in the hands of the potter. We are your creatures. And we give you all glory and honor for everything that we see and do, for the the breath that we have at every moment. Lord, you are the end and the beginning. You are the Almighty. Help us to put all other things out of our mind and look to you and you alone. Father, I I pray now as we look at your word, as we get to look again at this great gospel story, we get to meet Jesus and see who he truly is. Lord, allow our hearts and minds to be opened. Allow us to appropriately, appropriately be honest with ourselves about where we need to repent and humble ourselves under the weight of the gospel and the, and, and the glory of this story and help us to rest in who you are in your son's name. Amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John, but but as you go there, we're going to be in chapter 6. I want to give another brief announcement, um, promotion for our men's retreat. The the men's retreat is coming up in the next couple of weeks. I believe it is the 28th, 20th, what's the, the, May 20th, 29th, there it is. It is the 29th, and I'm excited about uh, the weekend for several reasons. Number one, I so uh, enjoy and appreciate the moment that the guys can come and gather for the weekend, and just to have a time of prolonged fellowship. It's, it's you know, for us as, as men, we can so easily just get, be caught up in the stuff that we do um, and, and kind of run from one thing to the next and never have just a time to stop and have a genuine conversation with a brother in Christ. So that definitely happens at the men's, at, at the men's retreat, just a time of, of fellowship and rest together. But I, what I think I am most excited about is our speaker, Doug Searle, and in particular, the topic that he's going to be speaking on. Um, uh, we've, been, we've asked Doug for the last three years to be the men's retreat speaker for us. And it wasn't Doug that was declining. It was COVID that kept getting in the way. So this is finally, after three years, he can finally get a plane ticket out of Bonaire to come up here. And every single year, I've wanted him to speak on the same thing. And that is Ephesians and the unity of the church and the unity of the body. When I think of all of the things that Doug has taught me on and things that I'm following, I'm, I'm currently listening to his Hebrew series. And I would commend it to you if you're looking for a podcast, another sermon to listen to. It's uh, International Bible Church of 
Bonaire, IBC. You can go find that. He's in chapter 8. It's fantastic. But his stuff on Ephesians, I think, is the best stuff that I personally have heard him do. I, I am excited that he's going to condense this book down to four messages. Three of them are going to be at the men's retreat, but then on Sunday morning, he is going to be here in this pulpit preaching to all of us. So I'm excited about that. If you have yet to sign up for the retreat, men, it is time. Wives, if your husbands have yet to sign up for the retreat, either elbow them right now or just go ahead and do that. Um, so that announcement is over. John 6. John 6. We're gonna, we are continuing in this topic, but I want to start by saying this. You would think that after all that Christ has done for us, we would not struggle to publicly stand with him. He publicly died for us. He went to the cross. That's what we're going to get to focus our minds on this week and then even next week with Easter Sunday. And yet it is so hard for us at times to stand with him. I'm not talking about here at church. Here at church is very easy for us. We can come and we immediately say we're here to celebrate the finished work of Christ. But I do mean outside of these walls. Because if I know one thing about you, because I also know it about me, it's there are times when you struggle to associate with Christ. You wish you didn't have to stand with him. You wish that you could mute that side of your life. You're in conversations and it goes places where you go, mm, as a believer, as a follower of God, as a Christian, I'm going to stand out here. They're going to see that I am different. I'm going to struggle to associate with him. I know that that is something that, that you deal with, unfortunately, probably on a regular basis where you get into these conversations and that Christian side of your life can be hard to associate with, be hard to, to stand with Christ. Now maybe you thought that you would grow out of that struggle. Maybe you thought as, as a young Christian, you're like, well, I kind of get it. I don't have the answers. Maybe after I walk into this Christian life long enough, maybe after I study enough, maybe after I, I have downloaded enough apologetics to my life that I would no longer struggle to stand with Christ. Yet that struggle still remains. I mean, I, I sympathize with you. I've talked up here before. It can be hard, even as, as a pastor, to lead with the fact that, oh yeah, I'm a pastor, because that just puts everyone kind of back on their heels, and immediately people just start criticizing, oh, does that mean that you believe certain things? There's an illustration that came to mind this week as I was studying this, and it was a story that Betty Oxley told me. Now, if you had not had the privilege of meeting Betty Oxley, you missed out. Betty Oxley, uh, with her husband, was a missionary in Japan for 50 years. And the Lord blessed us as a church that after they retired from being missionaries for 50 years, they came back here and retired here in Nashville and went to this church for the last rough numbers, I think 40 years of their life. Dale passed away about uh, 12, 15 years ago. Betty passed away a few years ago. But Betty told me this story once. Actually, she told me this story like three times, which if, if you knew Betty, she kind of did that at the end. She told me this story about her son. They had three sons. They were very proud of their sons. And one of their sons, because they grew up in Japan, had a unique business opportunity. The business opportunity was they understood the Japanese culture fluently. They could speak the language fluently. They were fully Japanese. But because their parents were American and because they did some of their schooling in America, they were also fully American. They understood the American culture. They, they spoke fluent English. So he had this opportunity, one of their sons, where they, he was a liaison between a Japanese company and an American company. I think it was the Japanese company owned the American company. And one of his roles was to travel with the Japanese executive 
executives and liaison with them, make sure that they could, uh, you know, have all of the connections and, ha- and just be the translator for them and make sure that on their business trips here in the U.S. that everything went smoothly. Betty told me this story once that on one of these business trips they were in Las Vegas. Part of his job was to make sure that they had a fun time in Vegas. So he took them to shows and he took them to the restaurants and he took them down to the gambling floor and he walked around and, you know, it was very clear, you're my boss, I'm the translator, I'm here, he's, he's part of the company. And then one of these executives looks at him and says, hey, can you take us to a strip club? But he goes, all of a sudden, he couldn't do his job. He was with him, he was a part of the party, he was all on board until he wasn't. Because, I mean, I, I'm not going to have a whole apologetic of why Christians shouldn't go to strip clubs. But he understood, I can't do that. But here's the thing. In the Japanese culture, respect and honor is everything. Respect and honor of your elders, respect and honor of your, of your authorities is everything. In America, money is everything. I mean, just think about it. You're posed with a... You got to close the deal. You got to do whatever you can possibly do to make sure that you're not walking away from the money. So he is standing between a rock and a hard place realizing I am no longer with them. Because I have to look at the people that are my authorities and disrespect them by saying you shouldn't go there. I'm not going to do that. And then I have to look at my counterparts here in America and say I'm sorry I can't stand with you. I'm not going to give them everything they want. They might walk away from this job. He was with them until he wasn't. He realized all of a sudden, my faith in Christ, my belief, my Christian ethic, my sanctification is contingent upon me not doing the thing that you want me to do. I am not with you. You It's interesting. If if you walk down the street and you ask a normal person what they place their hope and happiness in, you're going to get a litany of answers. They're going to say, well, I am excited about the fact that I'm a good-looking person and I'm trusting the fact that, I'm, um, that my good looks are going to carry me through life. Some are going to say they're trusting in their money. Some are going to say they're trusting in their hard work. Others are going to say career and spouse and social media following, position at work. Some are going to say, well, I really love the lifestyle that I have, the parties that I get to go to. Some, some are going to say my faith and happiness, my hope and happiness is found in my family and my kids and my sexuality, in my physical health, in my mental health, in my personal disciplines, in my civic part." participation in my country. The list could go on and on for things that we place our faith and hope in. And in the world standards, if you were to publicly proclaim that to the world, everyone would praise that. Everyone would celebrate that. Everyone would say, yeah, those are great things. They would promote that as somebody to follow. But if you said Jesus, people are going to accuse you of being closed-minded, self-righteous, a prude, unloving, a bigot. This son was dealing with that. When they say, can you take me here? And I say, no. What are they going to think of me? What slander are they going to throw at me? Am I going to lose what I've worked so hard to gain here? Just to finish that story, not to leave it hanging. He didn't take him to the strip club. Or I think he took him to the strip club but didn't go in. Said, I, sorry, I can't, I can't go there. And assuming that he was going to be uh, rejected by the Japanese and fired by the Americans, what actually happened was that the Japanese individuals looked at him and said, wow, you are a man of character. You have conviction and faith. 
we want to work with you every time. So instead of being fired, he was promoted. Did he know that at the beginning? No. But instead of being fired, he was promoted. You know, one of the oldest truths in the book, we can see that in the Bible, we can see this in the garden, is that when a person relies upon God and Christ for their hope, they're at best questioned and at worst persecuted. Now, how does this fit into John chapter 6? Because do you know what happens when religious people are reminded that their hope and happiness and faith is found solely in God and in Christ? You want to know how those same things are questioned among us? Grumbling. Grumbling. Grumbling because we respond, we know that already. I stand up here and I go, you can only trust in Christ and Christ alone. And the thing inside your head goes, I know that already. Or the other thing that, that, that you say is, it's not that simple, Ryan. Or the other thing you say is, you don't know what's at stake. Grumbling is where we're going to pick up in our text today. See, we're in the middle of John 6. John 6, this chapter, is turning up the heat on Christ's sufficiency and supremacy. Last week, we looked at the I am statements, and we were looking at the first of the I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. And what does that mean? That means that Christ is, your only, is the only hope that we have. He is the only bread that can satisfy. He alone can save. And as, as, as we continue this discussion and the religious leaders hear that, what we're going to hear is the very first response that they had was grumbling. Look with me at our text. It's going to be 46. We're going to uh, read through it slowly. We're going to get all the way through the end of this 59, but just read with me 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he say, I have come down from heaven? They grumbled at Jesus because Jesus has this extreme, supernatural, amazing declaration that is only through me that you can have hope and life and death. And they go, well, well, hang on a second. I know your mom. I know your brothers. I know your house. Why is it that you and you alone are my only hope? They grumbled, like, no, we have other things that we are going to trust in, Jesus. You are not that special. So last week we looked at, we talked about how God brings people out to the wilderness in order for them to understand the fact that the only hope that they have in life and death is God in Christ. This word grumbling here describes what Israel did with the manna in the wilderness. If you look back at Exodus 16, this is where they've, they've gone through an, um, an amazing story up to this point. I mean, God has done tremendous things in their life and in this nation. They saw all of the plagues. They saw the Red Sea split. They, they've, they've, they're, they're journeying on the way to Sinai and they run out of food. And here's what happens. This is 16. I'll just read a couple of verses for you. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people said to them, would you have had... Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and, the, and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Let me talk about some grumbling. I'm hungry, Lord. Are you trying to kill us over here? They grumbled. 
Lord, I don't like your plan. I don't like the way this is working out. I wish it would look different. And what does he do? He declares to them, okay, I hear you. Every single morning, meat is going to fall from heavens in the shape of birds. Every morning, you, you are going to be giving meat. Every evening, manna will fall from heaven until you reach the promised land. He picks up in verse 8, Moses said to them, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, sorry I flipped it, meat in the evening, bread in the morning, evening meat in the Evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to your full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it is against the Lord. Why were they grumbling? Why were the Jews grumbling in John 6? Because the declaration that Jesus just said seemed ridiculous to them. Everything inside of them said it has to be more complicated than that. Everything inside of them said, no, no, no. We, we have to trust in more than just Jesus. There has to be more to this equation than just Christ alone. They thought for a moment, Jesus can't be from the Father. Because what did they just say? We know who Jesus' Father is. That's Joseph. Jesus can't be from heaven. We walked into his home. We saw where he was born. He's been one of us. He didn't just show up on the scene. How is it that you're saying that you are my only hope in life and death? They, they grumbled because the declaration they thought Jesus was offering was absurd, was irrational, was senseless, was ungrounded, was illogical, was foolish, was unnatural, was unusual, was unscientific, was downright crazy. Have you heard those descriptions placed against Christians today? You're telling me that what you're trusting in is a man who died on the cross 2,000 years ago? You're telling me that you're unwilling to participate in certain actions because a book that was written thousands of years ago tells you that you can't? You're telling me that you're not, that you are going to be shaped your ethic is going to be different than what the world has because somebody a long time ago said it was the right thing to do. That seems absolutely crazy. They heard, these religious leaders, these Jews heard Jesus say, your only hope rests in trusting in me. And they understood the audacity of that statement. And where they immediately went to in their grumbling was they tried to talk it out. They tried to say, no, it can't. It can't just be that simple. But Jesus then keeps explaining. Keeps explaining what he means by the fact that he is the bread of life. And so read with me where he goes from 43 to 51. Jesus answered them. Do not grumble among yourselves. For no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. That came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you know what makes 
Christian life so hard? Why it's so difficult for us to live out our Christian faith in this dark and broken world? It's because of the declaration that Jesus just offered. Unless the Father draws a person in, they won't see how precious Jesus actually is. One of the questions that's often asked is, why do some people see and others don't? Why do some take a lifetime of pain and agony and trial to come to Christ and finally see him as the savior and others hear it the first time as a child and avoid all of the pain? Why does one child in your household who heard all the same sermons, who lived under all the same rules and principles, who went to all the same camps, believe and your other child doesn't? Why can't we debate somebody into believing in Jesus? This is, I mean, we're down at the, at the depths of this Christian faith, those things that keep us up at night. Why is it that some can see Jesus as truly the Savior that he is and others mock him for being the fool that they think he is? But this distinction is something that we see all over Scripture. Some hear of Jesus and run to him, while others hear of Jesus and run from him. Why? Why does this happen? Turn to Matthew 13 for a moment. Because Jesus describes it in this text, but I, I want to f- follow it up with a fuller explanation. Matthew 13 is an interesting chapter. Because it's a chapter filled with parables. And all of the parables center on the kingdom of heaven. And all of the parables are some of our f- favorite parables. Like, there's the parable of the sower. That's how it opens up where... The sower sows the seed, and there's four various types of ground. Some take root, some don't. There's a parable of the weeds. In the field, there's various weeds, and there's the wheat and the tares. There's a parable of the mustard seed. There's the parable of the hidden treasure. There's the parable of the great value. There's the parable of the net. And when we get to Matthew 13, it's so easy for us to go, why are you speaking in parables? Why, why this way of communicating? It's actually something his disciples asked him. And and I want to cover this in Matthew 13 because it answers the question that is posed in John 6, but it's also posed in Matthew 13 because the disciples are living it in time. Why are some coming to you and believe and hear it? And why are some coming to you and accuse you of being absolutely crazy and running from you? Here's what he says. This is Matthew 13, 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. And hearing they do not hear. 
nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for the people's hearts have grown dull, and their eyes have, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The disciples asked the question, why are some understanding these stories and seeing you for who you are and some are not? And Jesus' answer is simply because some understand and are allowed to understand and are allowed to hear and some do not. What's the simple way to say that? Some are being drawn to Jesus and some are not. You know, the question of why do some hear and others do not, on a functional level, is easy to answer. Because God draws some. And some he doesn't draw on a functional level. But the harder question to answer, the harder question to ask, the harder question to deal with and to grapple with, the question that frankly I don't have an answer for is why does God not draw everyone? Why is God not opening everyone's eyes? Why are some allowed to stay in their disbelief? Which gets us back to John 6. Just turn back there. Why? Because no one can come to me unless the Father draws me. Draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus explains the concept around the bread of life and explains what kind of drawing this Father exercises. It's, it's not by savage constraint. This is not a drawing of like, Jesus is going to bring you to him kicking and screaming. Because when you realize that you need to come to him, there is no kicking and screaming. There is running. Conversely, the same way that Jesus doesn't drag somebody that doesn't want to come, anyone who, no one is rejected by God who actually wants to come. Because we also see in Matthew 7, this is what can make scripture so difficult because, yeah, the Father draws them, but we also see in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, it will be open. I mean, it's this, it, the two sides to one coin, it's those who want to come to Christ absolutely get him. But God has to draw you. And I will say this, if God draws you, you're not, not going to come to him. I know double negatives are hard. You will come to him. Because you see the beauty that he is. You see the savior that he is. You see the hope that he is. And you will run to him. So these Jews are grumbling by saying, how is it that you are telling me that my only hope in life and death is you? And some of them grumble. Why? Because the father says, I'm going to leave you in your darkness. You're not ready to see it yet. They were grumbling because they didn't like the simplicity and the exclusivity of Jesus' declaration. They love to trust in the things that they do. And the things that we do are many, right? We have lists and lists and lists and lists and lists of things. If somebody were to ask you, what's, what does it mean to be a good Christian? What does that look like in real time? We're, 
we often, if we're not primed and ready for the right answer, are going to say a list of things. But what Jesus says is, believe in me. That's what he says in verse 47 at the end of this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, period. Full stop. Why? Because I am the bread of life. At 51, I am the bread, verse 51, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Very simple. If anyone eats of me, if anyone believes in me, he is going to have eternal life. Imagine how simple that is and how much that stands out from the world around us. Because the salvation in our world standards are filled with lists and litanies of things that we have to do constantly or over the course of a lifetime so that we can be assured of our salvation. Where Jesus stands opposed to all of those is, it is a punctiliar belief. If you believe in me, you're good. This sets us up though for Jesus' last description to these religious leaders. And it's a description that has... Um, quite shocking to read, frankly. It's a description we're going to get into it. It's actually caused the church a lot of pain. It's a description, it's one of the reasons why people look at us as believers and call us foolish and ridiculous. So read 6, 52 through 59. The Jews then disputed among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? Like, they didn't, they didn't miss that part. When Jesus goes... You know, back, I will give you for the life of the world is my flesh. You're like, hold up, flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat, my, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Let's put that on a poster and hang it up. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the true food, my blood is the true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As a, father, as a living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread from the fathers ate and died. Whose food, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You know, we've heard before in the Gospels that the word took on flesh. So we've dealt with this word of flesh before. And we've heard before in the Gospels, John the Baptist declare to his followers, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he didn't say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's go eat him. But Jesus just did this description has actually caused a lot of pain in the history of the Christian church. Because immediately, like first century Judaism, Jesus ascends to heaven. The gospel is spreading throughout all of the earth. Rome is going, and, and uh, Israel being a Roman province, is going through all of these issues. And Nero decides to blame the Christians on some stuff that's happening in Rome, burns the city of Rome, and, and blames it on the Christians. And he could blame it on the Christians because the Christian doctrine, if you spin it in the right way, seems ridiculous. So what Rome is saying is we're going to blame it on the cannibals. Because they didn't understand what Jesus was meaning here. 
about eat my flesh and drink my blood. We know as humans, we have to pay attention to what we consume. The older I get, the more I realize I have to pay attention to what I consume because metabolisms don't exactly work at the same speed as they used to. But we understand that we have to pay attention to what we consume because we understand that we are a product of our environment and we're a product of what we put into our bodies. You know, we, we, we teach people this on a regular basis. Like, this is why we have phrases like, you are what you eat. Or other phrases like, you're the product of your three closest friends. We understand that the outside, our, our outside influence influences us and affects us. The other way to think about this is that we're not self-sufficient. I can't stay one day, I'm just going to stop eating and drinking and not consuming anything. I'm not going to last long. Jesus is saying here, and is making crystal clear for them, that in order for your salvation to be sustained, the prescription for faith is that you consume Jesus. Verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Let's return again to that opening illustration. This is why it can be hard to stand with Jesus and be associated with him, right? Because there's these declarations. These Simple and, and, and yet exclusive declarations. Unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. That's what makes us sound crazy, ridiculous, absurd to the world around us. We, we know in this life that we need to trust authorities on certain subjects. Like if I'm sick, I'm going to go to a doctor. I'm going to trust that he can give me the appropriate prescription to make sure that, that I can have a healthy life. If, if I'm trying to study a certain subject, I'm going to go to the teacher that has a degree in that and I'm going to trust that they can give me the proper prescription and model for how to learn something. If, if I'm going to build a building like this, I'm going to trust that there's an engineer out there that is going to describe the perfect angles and weight-bearing loads, all those things, so that this building does not collapse. Allow me for a moment... To be an authority, a theological authority, and to describe for you why Jesus makes this declaration and it is the appropriate declaration. Because as a theologian, we can describe why Jesus is our perfect Lamb of God. Why do we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Well, what's up with his flesh? The reason we need his flesh, the, the, the reason that we need to consume his flesh, have his flesh in us, on us, is because our flesh is no good. Our flesh is completely tainted, completely ruined. It is gone. And it's not even so far gone of like, here's some medication and we're going to fix your flesh. Our flesh is so gone that it just has to burn and go away. And we need a brand new flesh. So when Jesus said, you need to eat my flesh, it's because his flesh is the only flesh that we need and is actually good enough. One of the things that Jesus is doing here on earth is, in theological terms, it's called the active obedience of Christ. Here's what that means. When Christ comes and lives on this earth, he is actively obeying God's perfect law. What, what caused us to be tainted and ruined, because we break God's law all the time, he is perfectly obeying it. Now, why does he have to do that? 
Because the covenant of works, that declaration that God gave to us in the garden is in order for, you, for us to be saved and stand before him, we have to obey God perfectly. That's what was told to Adam and Eve. Do this and live. But they didn't do it. But that declaration, that command still stands. God didn't say, well, that's over. Let's try a different plan B. No, the declaration still stands that the only way that a person can stand before the Lord is if he perfectly obeys God's law. This is why when Jesus comes to earth and he goes to get baptized and, and John the Baptist goes, no, you shouldn't do that. And he says, no, to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus doing during his earthly ministry? It is fulfilling all of the requirements that all of us have in order to stand before the Lord in the covenant of works to live a perfect life. That's why he is the perfect sacrifice for us because he lived the perfect life. If I say what is God's standard for us, it is very clearly Jesus because he is sinless and obeyed God in every single thing without any excuses, without any failures. He is the perfect example of what it looks like to be the perfect human and therefore he fulfilled the covenant of works. But why do we need his blood? We need his blood because we failed the covenant of works. Because we sinned against God. Because our bodies are ruined, are terrible, are ridiculous. We are a pile of rubbish. And the only way for God's wrath that he has against us for breaking God's law to be satisfied is for a perfect sacrifice. The, the lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament were a shadow of what it would take. It's going to take the shedding of blood in order for sins to be forgiven. But that was a shadow. That just demonstrated for us, somebody's got to die. But they were insufficient because every single year that Passover lamb had to be killed. But Jesus comes as the perfect lamb of God who satisfied all of God's requirements. He now comes and when he dies on the cross, as we're going to get to look at this week, satisfies all of the requirements and all of God's wrath that he has, that God has for us. And here's what happens. When we consume that by faith, we then are declared as righteous as Jesus is. We are declared that the righteousness that he fulfilled in his life on this earth is given to us. We're declared righteous. And then when we, by faith, accept Christ as our Savior, it is declared upon us that God's wrath for our sin has been satisfied. You know, when, when we talk about rest around here all the time, the reason we can talk about rest is because Jesus didn't just clean up your life to the point of, your, of, of salvation and then says, now it's up to you to keep it clean. Jesus cleaned up your life fully till the day you die. All of the sins you will ever commit, those moments when you will be foolish, stupid, and fall into that thing that you never thought that you would fall into and you turn around one day and go, God, you saved me even when I'm going to do that? The answer is yes. So when Jesus looks at these people and they are foolishly thinking, I'm going to trust in my faithfulness. 
I'm going to trust in my good works. I'm going to trust in my devotion. I'm going to trust in the stuff that I do. Jesus looks at them and says, listen, dude, the only hope that you have is in my body, in my blood. Which gets us to communion. Which clearly is the body and blood of Christ. Not physically. We're not transubstantiationists. We're not consubstantiationists. But as a remembrance of, memorial of, as a, as a, as a spirit-driven confidence in the fact that the body and the blood that we need, but more importantly, that we have been given, is found in Christ. That's why these elements are so important. That's why we, we, we take communion every week here. Because it's the only hope that we have. The songs are fantastic. The sermon it can be hit or miss. Because no one bats a thousand. The table is perfect every single week. Because it is finished in him. And when we come to the table, it's not us coming bringing our faithless lives to it. The communion table is not a potluck. It's us coming to it and saying, the perfect life that we needed, the perfect sacrifice that was required, the blood that was spilt, as Jesus is going to say, and we're going to celebrate next week as we celebrate it every week, that it is finished and complete and accomplished in him. If, if you're here this morning and, and maybe this is the first time that you, you heard all of that and, and you understood like, oh, when you say faith in Christ is the only thing and it is by grace through faith alone and, and maybe you haven't fully placed your faith in that. Maybe you're not fully believing. Maybe you're still off to the side going, I, help me out. What I would ask is that you let the, these elements pass you by. Don't take them with us because we don't want these elements to confuse you. We don't want you to take these elements thinking in order to be saved I have to take them because it's not even that. We take these elements so that we can remember, we can experience, that we can be reminded, stopped in our tracks once again to say we are good with God because of Christ. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for your life, death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you that Everything that we needed was accomplished in you. Lord, thank you that we did not... Thank you that you did not leave us in our, in our misery, in our unbelief. You very well could have. You would have been right, just, good because you didn't need to save us. You are sufficient you are self-sufficient. You, you are everything that we are not. And yet, Lord, the amazing grace that is found in you, seen in your Son, is that you loved us enough to send your Son to die on the cross for us. Lord, help us as, as your children to live every day with that faith. And then on top of that, help us as your children to be compelled, propelled towards love and good works because of that. We have the most exciting news that this world has ever heard. Lord, help us to share that and to live in light of that every single day. In your son's name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.